Many of you will know uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, the magician's nephew in the Chronicles of Narnia. That's the story that recounts the creation of that fictional world of Narnia. Uh, and as Lewis crafted those stories, he, he had the God figure represented as a lion called Aslan. It's a world uh, full of talking animals, centaurs, giants, fawns, and the representative, God's way of appearing in that world is as a lion called Aslan. At Narnia's creation, in The Magician's Nephew, there are several people from our world and, and another world that are present there. And as this lion, Aslan, begins singing Narnia into being, he, he calls the stars, he sings the stars, he sings the sun and the moon into being. He sings the waters, he sings plants and then animals of all kinds. They're so memorable, they, they burst out of the ground. He describes it as like a, a boiling pot and then each boiling bubble pops out of it with an animal. It's a great scene. But in that, Lewis weaves this powerful insight into when people as people are listening to that song of creation, those present there respond to it differently in unique ways. So for some, this perfect creation song draws from them wonder, delight, awe. It touches something deep in them. It stirs longings, good longings. They want the highest, the best, the right. But for a couple of others, God's song turns their stomach, sickens them. They hate it. They want to get away. One of them runs screaming away. Eventually, when Aslan begins to speak, so he'd been singing, he begins to speak. Those who are opposed to him and opposed to what's good hear only growling and roars and snarls. So the point is, it's fairly transparent, what is in all these people determines whether and how they can hear or understand what Aslan is saying. It determines also whether they recognize him as the Lord of all, or they just see him as a, a beast. Remarkable difference, right? For some, this is God over all. For others, this is just a beast. It's a powerfully clear metaphor for what happened as Jesus was walking around the ancient land of Israel. It's also a disturbingly reflective metaphor for our own relationship with God's voice to his working in our lives, whether and how we can hear what's in us, including who we are, who we're becoming, what our desires are, those things become a filter for how we see and how we hear and how we respond to God. So let's hear what the Lord has to say about this through the Gospel of John. We come to chapter 12. If you have scriptures, please open chapter 12. We begin about verse 20. We enter these events just after Jesus has come into Jerusalem at the beginning of the week-long Passover festival. Last week, as Logan preached here, 
we saw this surging, expectant crowd hailing his arrival, excited as he rides down the slopes of the Mount of Olives. The honor given him is so great that even some non-Jews, some God-fearing Greeks, want to meet him. They're recognizing this is, this is a figure that commands authority. Even these God-fearing Greeks may see, may perceive him as the Messiah, the Christ. For Jesus, if you look at the text here, the honor of the nations, this honor from the Greeks, this interest from the Greeks, is connected in his mind with his death. See what happens. They ask to see him, and he immediately begins talking about his death. So John is showing us that honor from the non-Jews, honor from the nations, prompts Jesus to speak about the way to eternal life, a way that's for all. And this way passes through death, his death, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. So that way for the nations passes through his death. And anyone who would follow him, anyone who wants to be part of this kingdom, must follow him there, must give over his or her life to Jesus. So one must die, each one must die as a ruler of self. Each one must become a servant, he says. Each one must refuse to be one's own personal God, must yield to the God who is. And in doing so, there is salvation, there is, there is eternal life, and there's honor. So these are cosmic realities that he's speaking. That, that may be one of the most succinct explanations of the gospel, certainly that Jesus speaks. But these are cosmic realities that he's speaking and the horror of bearing the weight of the world's sins weighs on him. So as he's speaking about what must happen to accomplish these things, he's troubled. John's very clear. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. But then at verse 27, he draws on the power that he always worked from, the will of God. The purpose of God, what shall I say? My soul's troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He knows that's the Father's will. That's where he pulls strength from. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. I've glorified it. I will glorify it again. The Father speaks from the heavens, his space. And he communicates to the crowds what Jesus just said. The path of life he just laid out. That is glory. That is true. It is in fact his plan. 
It will result in the fulfillment of his purposes. What Jesus said is right. His dying, the dying of our self-rule, that is the way to eternal life. And so the Father affirms that as being his way. Then this strange thing, this thing that we talked about with the kids, that Lewis describes in the, the magician's nephew. When God speaks, those present hear different things. The disciples heard God's voice. They heard what he actually said. We know God, John records the words. But verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So the father speaks. Some understand his words. The father speaks. Others hear, but don't seem to understand the words. They know that it's this, there's something divine happening. So they attribute whatever it was they heard to the voice of an angel. But most hear thunder. God speaks and most hear thunder. But it was truly the Father's pronouncement. It's a timeless statement. Whenever God speaks, it's timeless. I have glorified my name and will glorify it again. Jesus interprets this for the crowd. This is for you guys, he says. Now, or on this basis, on the basis of what is about to happen, on the basis of what's unfolding here, on the basis of this week, is the world judged? On the basis of his crucifixion and resurrection, is the world judged? On the basis of the crucifixion and the resurrection, is the ruler of this world, Satan, cast out? Now on the basis of his death and resurrection, Jesus will rule over all and draw all to himself. These are all eternal realities. These everlasting realities, and they all pivot on this moment. They pivot on the now. They pivot on what's happening there. And he has just declared, what he has just declared and what the Father has affirmed. And yet, and yet, for most of the people standing there, for most of the people hearing these eternal realities, it gives them no sight. There's light being shown, but it doesn't, they don't receive it. Why? How does this happen? How can the God of all the universe in flesh say true things, have the affirmation of the Father in the heavenlies, and most people don't hear it? In verses 37 to 40, 
as he often does, John interprets a moment that has just happened. He comments on it. He, he helps us understand. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, therefore, this is John's comment, they could not believe him. They could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw Christ's glory and spoke of him. John is telling us, for the purposes of God, this had to be. It had to be that his favored, chosen people, his blessed people, would nevertheless reject him. Isaiah saw it in prophetic vision and spoke of it. But for the reconciliation of God with man, for the healing of the nations, the blind must be blinded, the hard hearts must be hardened more. Though signs and wonders were done, signs and wonders multiplied, though truth constantly spoken, it wasn't received because there wasn't openness to God in their hearts. In the hearts of the Jewish leaders, they couldn't hear truth as truth. John even says in verse 42, even so, many of the authorities believed in him but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. There were other voices louder than the voice of truth. So in one sense, the blinding had to be done. In order for the atoning sacrifice of Jesus in order for that to be accomplished, for the life of the world, it had to be. Paul says it this way in Romans 11. The elect of Israel obtained what it sought, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear. But, Paul goes on, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles for the sake of the world, for the life of the world. This blindness had to happen. And the crowd couldn't hear the truth. And so the Lord Jesus walked his way to death and fulfilled the purposes of God. But notice this. At the very same time, that this blindness was achieving its result. In this very same moment that, that blindness is happening, Jesus was speaking the healing remedy for it. He was giving the medicine for the healing of the blindness. This is the other side of the timeless statement in verse 32. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. When he says that word, 
It hasn't happened. This other side is his word, once spoken, always speaking from the throne. It's a timeless reality. See how he concludes this moment from verse 46. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak, and I know that his commandment, all the things that he has said, is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So not only was he life in the flesh, his words are life. He is life walking about Galilee and Judea. But his words are also life. Words received from the Father. Words that pierce to the heart and set free. Words that reveal what's there. And these words never fail. They never end. They never cease. These are eternal words. His words are eternal life. They give it so that to accept his words is to accept eternal life, life with God. And to reject his words is to turn away from life with God. So Jesus says, I'm not judging. I'm offering life through my words. I'm offering the healing for your blindness. And as you remember, if you've looked in Acts at all, after the resurrection, in the few years after that resurrection, many Jews believed, certainly many who were in that crowd that day, many who were blind that day. Luke tells us that many of the Pharisees believed, many of the rulers believed. So those who had been blind in that moment were able later to receive his words spoken by the apostles. So let's take warning. That time of blindness is over. The time of the glorified Christ is here. It's come. He's given us light to live by. He's given us his words to find life in. His words that sustain, his words that bring reconciliation, his words that bring peace. Satan is cast from his rule. He's cast from dominance. And now his power is limited to lies. He's in tightened limits. He doesn't have rule or claim over anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus, who's come into his kingdom. So within the kingdom of God, our blindness 
which we do often have, is a willing blindness. We will ourselves there. Our hardness of heart is a willing hardness. Having been made free, set free from captivity, set free from the bonds of the enemy, we choose to enslave ourselves. And this is an age of words. The age we live in, particularly in the West, it's an age of words. Our enslavement comes by words. Rule is claimed by words. It's yielded by words. By believing them, by submitting to them. Whose words? Whose voice? I've noticed, you've noticed over the past few years, many churches have become politically aligned. There are Democrat churches. There are Republican churches. And that kind of politicizing is done through words. It's done through rhetoric, discourse. It's done through submission to a story from this side or that side. So for us, for us, and I mean us locally, whatever bits of truth may be found in the different political narratives, that is not our story. Neither of those is our story. That's not us. We have a story. We are of the kingdom of God. We're, the king, we're of the kingdom of Jesus. Our story includes Adam and Eve. It includes this, a perfect creation, the gift of life. It includes deceit and seduction by a very real spiritual enemy. We don't set that aside. That's real. Our story includes a global judgment. It includes a new beginning through a flood and through Noah. And then God beginning a plan to remake mankind and to do it by calling one family, by making himself his, known to them, giving them his character, showing them the path of life, standing behind them like we heard in the scripture, saying, this is the way, walk in it. In the story that we live in, God came. He came and he, he brought back to us the eternal word that we had lost, the eternal word that was, was once living in us, that we rejected. He brought it back. He restored it personally. He brought the eternal word of God into human flesh so that it could dwell with us. And then by his word and his spirit, he breathed it into the world. And he removed judgment the judgment for our rebellion by taking our death so that we could receive his word and we could have his life. And now we can live by his spirit. Now we can live by his word. We can live with the knowledge of everlasting life. We can take our cues from what is everlasting. The way that we walk through life can be hinged. It can be connected to what is everlasting not what is perishing. We don't have to take our cues from death, from what is limited, from what we're losing, from the time that's slipping through our fingers. We don't have to be desperate. We don't have to clutch. We don't have to have greed. This is our story, that life 
It's to be the lens that we see by. Freedom is to be the lens that we see by, that we filter, that we hear through, that we look at the conflicts of the world through. The whole story from Adam and Eve to our renewal with the Lord. That's our story. And those are the words Jesus spoke that judge creation. That's the word that judges us. But you don't have to live by them. You know, you don't have to. You've been made free. You've been made free to live as a seeker of comfort. You're free to live for sex. You're free to live for money or for career, for anything that's perishing. You're free to do so. You're free to live for equal pay for all as the ultimate good. Or you're free to live for the advancement of a particular tribe, some other story. You're free to drink and spew out words of hate. You're free to look with scorn and pride at those who see things differently than you. Or even uh, people that you just don't like. You don't like their personalities. You're free to shut yourself off from people, to draw your circle smaller and smaller and smaller till it's just you and you're completely cut off. You can do that. You're able to follow Satan back into the darkness of self-rule. To submit yourself to the chains and be completely alone. Please don't. Receive the gospel again. For freedom, Christ has set you free, not for enslavement. For freedom, Christ has set you free to know him, to open your heart, to live with him, to find life in him. So live his story, find life in his story and live it with this strange collection of people. A bunch of weirdos, chief weirdo confusing people that will disappoint you, that will trouble you with our decisions. You can't do that in your own power. You do need the grace of God in order to live with this. So try to live with wounded people in your own power and you will find yourself running into isolation. But God's grace is sufficient for his kingdom. God's grace, he's sufficient for this. And you are making this choice all the time. You are constantly making it. Whatever voices you heed, whatever articles you read, news feed you subscribe to, the shows that you watch, the books you read, whatever describes life to you begins to have authority and you are submitting to that story. Let it be the one that ends in life. Isaiah 30, verse 15, thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, 
you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, he said to them. Let's be willing. He stands, he, he's open-armed. In quietness and in trust is your salvation. Lord, thank you for your words, your words that are timeless, that are ever powerful, that are the remedy for our blindness, that are the, is the medicine for our healing. We just say thank you. And we ask that you would give us appetite to hear from you. In Jesus' name.